Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. In this series of messages we're in, we're considering the unique assignments that we believe God has given us as a church, and we're calling these assignments God Dreams. And here's our definition of a God Dream. It is a vision of the future that begins in the mind of God and that is given to us. And church is the place where God invites us and calls us to dream His dreams and then work together to see those dreams become reality. Now, whenever God gives us a vision of the future, it is presented inside of a frame. In other words, there are limits to it. And that's because while God dreams tremendously large, we have limitations to us. And so God gives us a doable part of the future that he wants us to be a part of. And the frame that marks the limits, the doable part that he has given us, has four sides to it. And we've been looking at these sides. The first side is our mission. And our mission answers the simple question, what? What are we doing? And it's just a basic phrase that helps us stay focused and stay on track in what it is that God has given us to do. And here's our simple phrase, thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. Everything we do can point to that one simple statement. The next side is the values, our values. Our values answer the why question. Why are we doing this? God is interested not only in what we do, but actually more importantly in why we are doing it, what our motives are. And so the last three weeks, we've been looking at the five big whys or motives that move us forward as a church. Now, today we're going to turn our attention to the next side of the frame, and that is the strategy side. And this answers the how question. How are we going to do this? What is our strategy? Now, the question for any mission is, how do you accomplish this? A dream can only become real if it becomes a set of behaviors that are practiced, that are done. And a strategy is the pattern of behaviors that tells us how we are going to realize the dream that God has given us. Now, in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked a strategy question. And here's what we read in verses 34 through 36. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, and this is the strategy question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, the person asking this was an expert in the law, which meant that he knew all of what God had said in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. The bigger challenge, though, is not just knowing what God has said, but how do you get traction doing it? Where do you begin? I mean, it's a big book with lots of words. And how do you know if you're making progress? And so the question really was this, Jesus, what, what's your strategy? Where, where do you begin? What's the greatest commandment? Now, at this time, there were two strategies that were very popular. One was the strategy of a group called the Sadducees that are mentioned here, and the other was the strategy of the group called the Pharisees. And what would happen in this period of time is you would pick one of these two groups, and you would pretty much adopt their approach, their strategy for doing God's law. And of course, these two groups became rivals, which is what you kind of see boiled to the surface here in these verses in this exchange with Jesus. So the question they're really asking is, Jesus, which one of us is right? Are the Sadducees, are we the ones that, that we figured out the strategy that, that's best, or, or are the Pharisees the ones that, are, that have got it right? Well, here's Jesus' answer in the next few verses, verses 37 through 40. Jesus answered or replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what's his answer to the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Basically, neither of you are right. In fact, what Jesus is saying here is you both have missed the strategic key to everything that God has said. And the key is love. First, a love for God, which then anchors the second one, a love for others. Recently, I had to drive out to Riverside for a meeting, and I've been to Riverside obviously many times. I know how to get there, but I used Google Maps not so much to tell me how to get there, but to track my progress. It's not enough just to have the feeling that you're making progress. You really want to kind of know where you're at as you're making a trip. I wanted to know the truth, and that requires an objective standard, something more objective than seems like we're moving, seems like I'm making progress. I wanted to be able to look down and see well, how many miles are left and how many minutes is it estimating that's going to take for me to get there? In order for that to happen, you need an objective standard. And of course, in this country, when it comes to uh, traveling on roads and the different um, apps that have maps, we use miles to track our progress. That is an objective standard that helps us know, well, how far away are we from the goal? Now, the objective standard of progress that is on God's path, is the standard of love. Now, to us, that doesn't sound like a, a very objective standard. And the reason is because we've kind of redefined love in our culture to primarily be an emotion. And when it comes to measuring an emotion, well, that's very subjective. It's not objective. But at its core, it turns out that love is defined by a clear set of actions. The emotions that are part of love, they're secondary. They, they tag along. But what really drives love is an objective set of actions. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. 1 Corinthians is a New Testament book that was written to the first century church in the city of Corinth. And this church was very serious about making progress on God's path. And they had a, a strategy. The problem was they were using the wrong standard to identify and measure their progress. They were comparing the gifts that God had given them and how important those gifts appeared for determining how much progress they were making in pleasing God. And so, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, who is writing this letter, kind of summarizes a lot of the gifts that God gives and the purpose of these gifts. And then at the very end of the chapter, he makes an interesting statement. He says, and now, we've just talked about all these gifts, and we've identified their purpose, but now I'm going to show you the most excellent way. That word way is a strategy word. You know, if you're going to go from the parking lot out here to lunch or to your home, you've got to figure the way. You've got to come up with a strategy of how do you get from where you are to where you want to be. That's a strategy or that's a way. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is you've been using these gifts to kind of strategize how you're going to make progress, but I'm going to show you now the most excellent way. I'm going to show you how you really measure and mark progress as you move forward. And that leads to the introduction of chapter 3, or 13 rather, which is called the love chapter. And in this chapter, the first three verses of it identify the three critical mile markers of love. And from these markers, we've identified four next steps that summarize our strategy. So first, the markers and then the strategy or the, the, yeah, the steps that go with it. Love marker number one, verse number one of 1 Corinthians 13, tells us that love is, is about investment, not impression. We tend to think love is uh, basically about the impression that we make. 
And God says, no, it's actually about the investment that you make in other people. Here's verse 1, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we assume that if someone can say the right words, you know, speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and give the right public impression, that they are well on their way to success. And we do the same thing when it comes to love. We think that if someone is saying words of love, if they're displaying emotions, maybe even tears of love, they're, they're leaving the impression that they really love because of the noises that they're making, the words they're saying, the displays they're giving, then that what they must really love. But this verse is saying, no, that, that could just be noise. I mean, it may be real love, but it's really just noise. It's kind of like using revolutions per minute to measure distance traveled in your car rather than miles per hour. Here's a picture of the dash of my car. The gauge or the dial to the left is the tachometer, which measures how many revolutions per minute the engine is running. The gauge to the right is the speedometer. That measures how many miles per hour I'm traveling. Now, you'll notice in this picture, the RPMs are right about at 3,000. But how fast am I going? Zero. Why? Well, you see that little P right there. My car is in park. In fact, I went outside to take this picture and revved the car up, and all my neighbors were probably wondering, what is he doing out there revving his? It's not like he's got a sports car. What, what's he doing with that? But you can have the engine revving really high and be making no progress at all. Lots of noise, but no miles per hour. And the same thing can happen with love. You can be making all of the sounds and all of the noise to make people think that you're really loving, but not actually getting any traction when it comes to love. You have to put love into drive and begin to make progress. Now, you put your life into drive when you make investments in the life of other people. That's what love really does. It makes investments. So here's our strategy statement related to this marker of love. Relate in real life. Relate in real life. Now, what we're saying here is it is in the details of everyday real life that the most important opportunities to love are presented to us. Now, Jesus made this very clear in John chapter 13. This is one of the final scenes that Jesus has before he's crucified. And he and the 12 disciples have made their way to Jerusalem after three years of traveling around the countryside in Palestine. And they've arrived in Jerusalem with great anticipation, and something big is on their minds. They realize that they are arriving at the zenith of the story. And the disciples are thinking in big political terms. Their assumption is that Jesus is going to be crowned the promised Messiah and that they then will rule with him. Jesus is also thinking big, but not in political terms. He's thinking big in eternal terms. In the next four days, he realizes that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be put on trial, he's going to be crucified, and then he's going to rise from the dead in four days. So the next few days were going to be resounding gong and clashing cymbal, head-turning kind of days. If you were in Jerusalem at this time, there's no way you would have missed the events that were about to unfold. So before the symbols of history crashed, Jesus pointed once again to the mile marker of love. And he did this not by delivering some impassioned speech about love or by displaying some emotion of love for his disciples. 
No, he demonstrated the context in which love does its best and most consistent work. And that is the context of daily life, real daily life. So here's what we read in John 13, 4 through 5. So he got up from the meal. This is the Passover meal that he was having with his disciples. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, in a time of sandals and dusty roads, when walking was the primary means of transportation, it doesn't get more real than washing dirty feet. This was an ongoing need that was done with great regularity. But for some reason, this menial but important task had gone undone before this meal. And so there they were, celebrating the Passover meal with dirty and stinky feet, all of them. Now, maybe everyone was just too busy thinking about the great things that were to come, and maybe their role in it to, to notice the dirty feet that needed to be washed. Or maybe they felt that, you know, it wasn't their place to do anything because this was usually done by a servant on the way into uh, a meal like this. But that wasn't the case for Jesus. He saw a very small but very practical need, and he addressed it. He took care of it. Now, what's, I think, most amazing to me about what Jesus did is the opening statement that we read in John chapter 13, verse 1, that is the statement of what took place here. Here's what we read. Having loved his own who were in the world, he, speaking of Jesus, now showed them the full extent of his love, and then it goes on to tell the story of the washing of the feet. And as you read that, you just have to think, really, this is the pinnacle display of Jesus' love for his disciples? Out of all that he's done over these past three years, this is the full extent? This is the pinnacle? This is the, the high watermark of his love for his disciples? Washing their feet? If you read through all that Jesus had done, I mean, if I was asked to pick the most, most important and amazing loving event that Jesus did, I would have picked something else. I wouldn't have picked this. I wouldn't have said, well, this is the full extent. This is the top one right here. I, would have, I probably would have picked the time that Jesus rescued the disciples uh, from death on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm. I mean, that, their life was at stake there. Now it's just, you know, dirty and stinky feet. That's not a life and death situation. That's just an uncomfortable situation. So why is this the pinnacle? Why is this the full extent example? Well, I think it's because this is an example of the kind of thing that all of us can do. Yeah, I, I can't walk on water like Jesus did when he rescued his disciples. You know, if my friends are in a boat out in the ocean and a storm comes up, I'm not walking on water to go help them. I can't do that. I certainly, even if I took a boat out there, I certainly couldn't stop the storm and tell the wind and the waves to stop like Jesus did. I can't love like that. But the kind of thing that Jesus did here, yeah, I can do that. And you can do that. I mean, I can bring a meal to a neighbor whose wife has just had cancer. That, that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. I, I can serve in that practical way. In fact, the word neighbor that was used earlier when Jesus said, love your neighbors yourself, already made it clear that love was not something to be displayed on the big stages of this world, but it was to be displayed in the trenches of daily life with the people that we live next to and we work with and we walk next to and we rub shoulders with. That's where love is displayed. You see, most people in, in our community will not take the initiative to come here on a Sunday morning and gather with us. 
But, you know, that's okay because we don't live here. We have real lives like they do. And it's in the living of a real life with them and serving them and helping them that we have the best chance to love the people that God has put in our path. So we gather here, but then we go out into real life where we have the real opportunities to love the people that God has put around us. Just a few weeks ago, I was at Home Depot, and I rounded the corner and ran into someone that, that, is, um, that attends here at Seabreeze. You know, it's always surprising when you see someone out of the normal context. So we, oh, you know, we, so we talked. We had a good little chat. And then near the end of, of our conversation, this person looked at me and just said, wow, you are real. <laughs> now, it took me back for a little while, but I know what, what this person meant. It's not that they think I'm a holographic projection here on stage every Sunday. What they were saying is they'd only ever seen me here. And this isn't real life. I mean, this is a part of life, but this isn't what we call real life. They hadn't seen me in real life doing the things that real people do, like go to Home Depot. There I was doing real things, so I must be real. You see, real life is where love occurs. But the problem is, like like the disciples, we get distracted by some, you know, clashing symbol demanding our attention and we just don't notice the dirty feet opportunities all around us to serve the people that we're next to. This is why the first step in our strategy, if we're going to get traction in really loving, the first step is we're going to have to relate in real life. And this is the icon. We've, we developed a little image or an icon for each of these four strategy steps. And this icon is simply an opportunity for us to remind ourselves to lift our heads up and look out on the people around us, the people that we're doing life with, and ask the simple question, how can I help? What can I do? And that develops relationships over time. You see, success in our culture is measured primarily by the number of heads that you can turn, whether it's the number of people you can gather in a meeting or the number of followers you can get on social media. But it's always how many heads are going to turn your direction. But God says, all that means is that you can make a bigger noise than somebody else. That, that, that's not real progress. I mean, if you wanted to get everyone's attention in this room, bring in a set of symbols and just crash those symbols. Every one of us is going to go, what is going on? I mean, it, noise is going to turn heads. But the crashing symbol isn't going to keep people's attention. I have never heard of anyone going to a two-hour cymbal concert. I mean, that's just, that would be irritating. You know, after three minutes, be like, okay, why did I spend money on this? I don't know why. You know, that, that's never going to happen. So a big noise can turn heads, but it doesn't really make a difference over time. It doesn't really get traction. It doesn't really last. It, it's just momentary. And what God says is, when you quietly decide to serve someone in the context of your real everyday life, or just a real practical needs, like what Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet, when you do that, you're showing the full extent of love. And God says, my head will turn and watch that. Maybe no one else will notice. It's not a symbol crashing thing, but it's very practical love. So that's marker number one. It's about investment, not impression, and therefore we relate in real life. Marker number two tells us that love is about gatherings, not gifting. 
Verse 2 says this, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, we're all gifted. We've all been given gifts. God has given each of us a unique set of abilities, a unique set of opportunities. And when we decide to follow Jesus, we were given additional gifts called spiritual gifts. And the question whenever you receive a gift from God especially is, why? Why did he give you this gift? Now, the most common answer is, for me, to benefit us. Now, it is true, we do benefit from the gifts that God gives us, but that's not the primary reason that God gives them. They are to be used to bless others, to love. In fact, what's interesting about the gifts that we've been given, it's only as we use our gift, leverage our gifts to bless others that we find those gifts bringing most blessing to us. If we make it just about us, those, those gifts really turn on us and can do us damage. But the problem with this church in Corinth is that they had turned their spiritual gifts into a bit of a competition. Who's got the greater gifts? Who's more impressive because of the gifts that they have? And of course, in a competition like that, those who have the more public gifts, who are better on stage, well, they were getting all the points in this competition. Gifts like, as it says, prophecy. You know, that's pointing to the people in the church who are gifted with the ability to stand up in front and speak God's words, to speak words of prophecy. You know, people like me, I'm taking what God has said in His Word and trying to help us all understand that. It's a very public gift. And everyone in Corinth was clamoring for, for these public gifts. But, of course, the spiritual gifts like serving and all of the less noticeable gifts, no one was clamoring for those. They were being ignored. And so what Paul does in this verse, verse 2, is he stages a kind of a gift competition. In a sense, what he's saying is, let's just say, for example, I have the gift of prophecy. And not just a beginning-level gift, but a top-tier-level gift of prophecy. Let's say, he says, that my gift of prophecy is such that I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Not just that I can figure out a few mysteries and know a few things, but no, God gives me insight into all mysteries, and I always know what to say. Well, that's that's a top-level gift of prophecy. I've never heard of anyone having that. Well, then let's add to that, Paul says, the gift of faith. Again, not just entry-level faith, but the kind of faith that can move mountains. Jesus said earlier is that if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. And he wasn't talking about some physical parlor trick where you could just move a mountain and throw it in the ocean. He was talking about what faith does is it allows you to face the mountains of obstacles and just keep moving forward and watch God throw that mountain. Watch God make a way through that mountain. Paul says, just, just imagine, I, I also now have the gift of faith, that I can, I can look at a mountain-sized barrier, and I can still trust God and keep moving forward and get to see Him come through. Now, you combine those two, and you have an amazing combination for leadership. I mean, can you imagine a leader who has the faith to trust God and lead into insurmountable odds in the unknown? And they also have the ability to know what to say at every point in time. That would be amazing. So that's the kind of gift Paul is describing in this gift competition he's staging. 
But he said, now, there, there is just one little problem with this person who has this kind of gift of prophecy and has this kind of gift of faith. They, they don't love very much. They have not loved. Now, it's the shortest part of the description of this person. Almost mentioned like a minor afterthought. So what would be the results? I mean, if you were going to score this competition, I mean, just imagine the panel of judges. You know, here's a picture of some diving judges. You know, how to hold up the sign, 10 being the best. What score would you give someone like this? Well, in the church of Corinth, this person would probably get a lot of 10s. There might be a few people that say, yeah, it would be better if he was more loving. So we're going to give him a one-point deduction. We'll score a nine on this person. And so then you look down the table of judges, and God's sitting on the end, and you wait for him to hold his scorecard up, and he holds his scorecard up, and what would it be? Zero. Zero. It says nothing. Really? How? Someone who has the gift of prophecy that can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and they have a faith that can move mountains, and they, they just don't love? And it's all that other stuff is just can't discounted because they don't love? How is that possible? How can a single hit in one category cancel out all of the amazing gifts? Well, it's because of the purpose of the gifts. The gifts exist to be able to love, to help others. And so if you leverage even amazing gifts in a way that's not loving, you don't get any credit. The earlier chapter, I'd mentioned chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul had listed all of the spiritual gifts and what their purpose was. And he described them in terms of body parts. And so he says in verse 20, he says, as it is, there are many parts, but only one body. So what he's saying is he's using the body as an analogy for the purpose of the gifts. Is that just like the parts of your body, they don't exist to be amazing in themselves. They exist to support your body. So you wouldn't want to have a competition among your body parts for who's greatest. You want, can we all get along and function together so I can live and move through life? It's the same purpose of the gifts in the church, the body of Christ. Their purpose is for the good of the entire church. And love is essential to that. So the gifting is to serve the gatherings of the church, not the other way around. What they were doing is they were gathering to bow before the gifts. What Paul is saying, no, 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 no. You gather to offer your gifts in service to God and to others. You've got it reversed. So the two, two strategy statements that we use to reflect this category is, first of all, attend a worship service. This is the large G gathering. We gather in a group like this. Now, the icon that we use to represent this is an image of this building, which is where our la large gatherings take place right now. This, whenever we gather in a, in a group, a larger group like this, this is when all of the people in a local church get a chance to gather. And it's in this larger gathering that we get a glimpse. Now, this is just a part of Seabreeze, but we get a glimpse of the entire body of Christ and all the represented gifts coming together to bow before God in worship. There's a lot of gifts in this room. But just gathering like this, what we are saying is that all of these gifts we offer in service to God. This is a weekly alignment opportunity that centers, centers us around the first and greatest commandment, which is to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. Our gifts serve the God that we love. 
And it's as we gather every week that we are reminded whatever gifts we have, whatever resources we have, they are in orbit around God himself. They're not for us. They're for a bigger purpose. And so then the next strategy move is to connect in a group. This is the small G gathering. Every church since the first century has gathered in large groups and small groups. Large G gatherings, small G gatherings. Attended a worship service, connected in a group. Now this is the icon that we use to identify our groups. We call our groups right now growth groups. This is an image of a tree, which represents growth, but also connection, how we get rooted and really connected in a church. Now, these are groups of usually about 10 to 20 people that meet each week for about 10 weeks on average. And we do this three different cycles or times during the year. Now, I want you to notice that you attend the large G gathering, but you connect in the small G gathering. You can't really connect in this size of a gathering. In a large gathering like this, you, you really can't get to know other people. I mean, you might introduce yourself, and that'd be great, get to meet some new people. But there isn't enough time and opportunity, because this is kind of a one-way conversation, for you to really get to know anyone else as you attend a worship service. That requires a smaller group of people. And it's in these smaller groups that we have the best opportunity to practice and learn how to do the second greatest commandment, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's where we really form relationships and begin to practice this. And that brings us to the third marker, the third verse of 1 Corinthians 13. And this one tells us that love is about incremental, not monumental moves. This is really important to understand, especially in our culture. Love advances incrementally not in giant monumental moves. We only are impressed with giant monumental moves, but it's the incremental stuff that God says really matters. So here's what we read in verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And when you want to talk about something monumental, give everything you have to the poor. That's monumental. Surrender your body to the flames because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. That is monumental. So on the scale of love for people, where would giving all you possess to the poor fit? Well, that's top tier. I mean, give, giving everything to the poor, that's, that's a huge sacrifice, an act of love. Well, how about on the, on the scale of ranking your love for God, where would you put someone who, like many of the first century Christians, were willing to be dipped in tar and lit on fire to be streetlights in the Roman cities rather than deny Christ? Where would you put love for God for that person? Oh, I mean, that's, that's top-level love. To say, you know what, I'd, I'd be willing to, to be burned alive rather than deny my love for God. I, you can't, I can't imagine getting any higher than that. And we look at monumental displays like that and say, wow, I don't know if I, I could ever do anything like that. But God, it turns out, isn't looking for big displays like this. I mean, that may happen, and some people, that's what they have to do. But what he's really looking for are the more weekly and incremental advances that characterize someone who is really learning how to love. 
Because the problem is, if you make these big monumental moves and you haven't been incrementally loving, what do you get? Nothing. This is important for us to understand because we tend to fool ourselves into thinking that we can coast in any area, particularly in love, and then at some point in the future, we're going to do something really big, maybe something really big for God. I mean, right now, you know, we're busy, we're maybe building a career, we're maybe getting our kids lined out, we're, whatever it is, and, and we're just kind of coasting in, in the loving God category. But, you know, once I get all this buttoned down and figured out, then, then I'm going to do some really big things in the God category. And we excuse the coasting now because in the future we got big plans. We're going to do something monumental. We do the same thing in our love for people. You know, we, we're going to wait, you know, and, and, and do something really big for our wife when, once this job gets kind of figured out, once this thing's, you know. But right now, we, you know, we don't really have the time for it. And so daily, weekly, we just, we just kind of back burner, back burner because... We love this person, and, and, you know, eventually, once I get all this figured out, then we're really going to display love. And that's kind of what Valentine's Day is about, you know? Big, monumental moves. Now, if you did something big on Valentine's Day, that's fine, but I'm just telling you that when God evaluates how we love and, and how you love, he's not going to say, you know what, hand over your Valentine cards. I want to see what you wrote. That's one piece. What he's going to look at is, okay, what about that week in September? And what about this day in October? And what about that opportunity in November? It's, it's the incremental stuff. It's not the monumental stuff that really makes a difference when it comes to love. So this verse says, even if your big move is to give all you possess to the poor and surrender your body to the flames, how, much, how far ahead will it get you? It won't. What will you gain? Nothing. Love is where rubber meets the road. It's where we get traction and gain ground moment by moment. There are no big helicopter leapfrogging type moves and options for growth and progress in this area. We learn how to love daily and weekly and monthly. And to not understand that, it's, it's kind of like sitting on the side of the 405 freeway with your car pointed south and saying to yourself, you know, someday... I'm going to suddenly arrive in San Diego. Not if you don't ever put it in gear. You're driving a car. You're not flying a helicopter. You, you just have to put it in gear, get moving. So what is our put it in gear and get moving strategy for this? Here's our strategy statement. Volunteer on a team. Volunteer on a team. Why? Why this? Well, the icon is a person raising their hand to represent them saying, hey, I'll help out. Not just once, not just in some big move, but on a team, which means I'm not going to do this just when it's convenient. I'm not just going to do it on my schedule only. I'm going to commit to a team that serves in some part of this church. I'm going to put love in gear. And you're making a commitment for a period of time, which keeps your love from just slipping back into neutral and coasting. And you're also, if you're joining a team, you're also part of a path 
that can advance you into more and more service if you so choose. It would be great if we could all just suddenly become more loving. If we could spend 10 years of not loving and then make one big giant move and all of a sudden be a loving person. But that's just not the way it works in any area, especially in love. So God gives us a church that has weekly opportunities for us to gather to love Him and express that, for us to gather and learn how to love each other, and for us to serve and sacrifice. So if you, f- if you find yourself stuck at any point in time, where you just, I, I just feel like I'm, I'm not growing, I'm not making movement, especially in my relationship with God, and you look at the Bible and think, I don't even know where to start to get traction again, I recommend you ask yourself these four strategic questions. First of all, who can I serve in my day-to-day real life? Where are the dirty feet that need to be washed? And then secondly, ask yourself, am I regularly attending a worship service? Or has worship service kind of slipped back to a number four, five, six priority? And if these other things aren't in the way, then I'll go. But I end up then not really being able to do that that regularly. Well, if you're not regularly attending a worship service, you are going to get stuck. Because putting God first is the necessary anchor to love. Without that, we just don't love very well or very long. And then the third question is, am I connecting in a group? These are the connections that will both test and teach love. And then lastly, am I volunteering on a team? Have I submitted my love to something bigger than me? These are the opportunities that allow us to actually make progress in practical love. Now, this strategy is like a coin with two sides on it. One side is for us to evaluate ourselves and ask ourselves in these four categories, how am I doing? Kind of like looking down at Google Maps. Where where am I at? Am Am I making progress? The second side of the coin is to use this as a tool for me to help others move forward. So what happens is at the same time, I'm asking myself, all right, where am I at and what's my next step? I'm also extending a thoughtful invitation for others to join me in this Relate in Real Life, attend a worship service, connect in a group, and volunteer on a team thing. So the the question is, what is your next step? What's my next step? If that's not clear, take some time this week to get clear, to figure out what's my next step. And then who is it that you can encourage to take their next step? People that you're investing in, in real life. Maybe you need to invite them to attend a worship service with you or join you in your growth group or help out on the team that you volunteer on and help them to get, get moving and get unstuck. In our culture, love is this big, monumental, impressive, emotional-driven display. But in reality, love advances in the trenches, far from view, day by day, choice by choice. That's the strategy of how we make progress. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank you for your objective words on this, for the, the chance to evaluate our lives. We thank you f- that your love for us 
um, is consistent and that you love us in spite of ourselves. And so we want to learn how to make progress in love, not so that you will love us more because that, that's already secured. The evidence of it is the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf that grants us forgiveness and a repaired relationship with you. So your love for us is secure. What is in question is whether we will learn more and more about how to love you and how to love others. So I pray that you would give us insight into maybe where we're stuck, what we need to do next. We thank you for making this clear to us. We pray and ask for your help. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.